Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast. We bring you the very best recorded panels, workshops, and seminars concerning role-playing game design and publishing. This has been made possible by the generous contributions of the panel speakers and double exposure with their leading game design convention, Metatopia. Episode 88, Gaming the Future, Putting the Science Fiction in Science Fiction RPGs. Recorded at Metatopia 2015. Presented by Joshua A.C. Newman, Dev Porqueesta, Laura Simpson, and Rachel Walton. Actually, that's a special value. Uh, One, two, three. I guess we need to figure out what we're going to hear. Everyone's going to hear my drinking. Yeah. Everyone's going to hear my sipping. Whoever listens to this later is going, that sounds really good. Whoever's sipping there sounds really good. All right, is anybody here to talk about things other than science fiction and culture? Uh, Alright, I don't know why you guys want to come to a panel Sunday morning at a convention talk about this boring bullshit. <laughs> yeah, alright, last choice. That's where it's at. I heard you were doing some sort of Jeep form things I came You know, Jeep form is a panel. That's not a bad idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, but we're not gonna. Because I don't have any creativity left. If we run out of stuff at 30 minutes, then, then it's on. Yeah, right. right, right. <laughs> uh, what we're going to talk about is um, uh, sort of what a future might look like uh, when it actually when it looks a little bit more like our panel than any given Asimov uh, story. Or at least how we infer an Asimov story uh, would look like a Clark story. Um should we? Yeah, let's introduce ourselves for formality's sake and for the microphone, since I, I think we know everybody here. But let's. let's get. Um, I'm Rachel Yes Walton. Um, doing like what we do. Yeah. At yeah. Um, I've been working on a game called The Long Orbit, which is um, a. Uh, I'm tired. Um, it's a space. It's sort of space disaster horror um, that uh, uses monster hearts as its little catalyst. I'm Laura Simpson. Um, I currently have a game campaign still, but I have a game in development called, um, with Dev P uh, over here, called Solar Flare, where it's about um, being in space and political machinations of forces. So, um, a short way of saying, instead of playing Han Solo, you're playing Empire, and you're, you're dealing with Empire problems. Uh, I'm Joshua A.C. Newman. Uh, I design Shock Social Science Fiction and Human Contact, uh, which are, uh, in the latter case, focused on what happens when cultures meet uh, and they have uh, values that are 
not even opposed, they just don't relate to each other, and then you have to uh, sort of sort out how those, how those cultures wind up um, uh, interacting. And uh, shock is about what happens to the people who are caught up in the shockwave of the future as it washes over them. Uh, my name is Dev Perkayesta. I've, um, yeah, I'm really interested in space and space-related games. I'm working on Solar Flare with Laura Simpson. Um, I've, um, I'll, I'll go through the, the list very quickly. I've um, released a supplement for Dog Eat Dog called Terra Utopia, where you fail to colonize another planet um, and die. I have a small index card-sized supplement for. Um, Vast and Starlet called Space Hunters, where you're grim bounty hunters in space, grimly. And uh, uh, working on, and then I have nearly done a, a Love Commander, which is sort of romance and space opera, and a third, fourth game, which is melodrama and space opera. So there's, uh, I iterated many games trying to get into space stuff, and also found many others. So that's clearly I'm as interested in this fan. Uh, yeah, and I sure I made a LARP about. Um, punks in space, mainly hanging out and sometimes racing. So I don't <laughs> that know, I, sounds awesome. I visit this a lot. What's, what's it called? Uh, Spacer punk. Spacer punk. Nice. Yeah, it was a LARP. So, <clears throat> um, the I think the first thing that I want to want us to discuss is the challenge that we have about the, what it means when we uh, make a setting that addresses either our own society's particular hegemonies or um, or we make it non white, non-dualistic um, uh, and non-imperialist or whatever when we make those decisions where does that, where does that desire come from and how do, we, how do we develop that and I'll leave that to anybody who wants to take that ball up there okay um I mean, I think it's a it's a real it's a real challenge. Um, so one trope in, uh, and I'll try not to only talk about space since we're also talking about science fiction, but we'll talk about space. But I think so in space opera, you can very quickly be replicating um, sort of older stories, and and that can creep things in. So uh, in a space opera playtest yesterday, um, like for example, like we're in a we're in the future as something entirely different but then a replicated social structure was effectively um, like a culture uh, a culture of working class being shoved in sort of a ghettoist structure and th- uh, th- that wasn't a negative thing but that was showing that we're echoing past patterns and current patterns and trying to address them by putting them into our fiction but I think this old old sort of problematic stuff like imperialist things even sexist tropes will always they'll all be there and you have to I guess think mindfully about how they're going to bring themselves into your setting. But when you, I think one thing is that whenever you have a science fiction story, you have to set your own baseline of what is the baseline now. Because if you don't set a different baseline, your baseline will be now or less. So, yeah. Uh, um, okay. um, my world I try to actively um, undermine that. Um, in, in one particular way, um, a lot of it involves uh, engaging the players to ask questions about how the stru- uh, society is stru- uh, structured, but then um, through gameplay, undermining uh, existing structures. So if uh, if someone builds something like, oh, 
this happened yesterday because I'm using like similar world generation things now. So, um, where uh, the goblins were a newly industrialized group. And at one point, someone decided to go into, oh, well, I don't want to say they stole our jobs, but <laughs> so, uh, but part of it is that um, I, I try to consciously make ways for people to undermine existing, um, uh, like, uh, how to put it, just like social structures and, um, and surprise them through uh, making choices in how certain things are represented or um, going out of the way to put extra representation of people that they don't expect in certain roles. So. Um, well, I, I primarily motivated um, by not quite seeing, like, I, being moved by a lot of science fiction, but not always seeing what I want to see in it. Um, and, um, like, the, the long order specifically explores um, more relationships happening while, um, uh, while there's things, things going on that they can't control. So it's, um, uh, it's a lot of the exploring the, the crew dynamic um, at work. And I, I guess I want, I want to see more science fiction that feels like uh, a future that I can kind of connect to. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of science fiction that does interesting stuff with um, fancy special effects or um, cool technology, but you don't always get to see what that means to the people who are part of it. Um, so I kind of want to be convinced that this is like, uh, I don't know, a world that actual people are a part of. Um, so I kind of interesting in exploring it. I think the uh, uh, the, the social structures that we that we're going to be mimicking things that we're not thinking about, and I think that if we want to use science fiction where it gains the most traction, um, we have to be deliberate, deliberately disruptive to those. We have we have to be able to be willing to say like, all right, what what am I going to um, radically alter and you can start with the things that you have these really easy names for like alright I'm going to radically alter uh, class structure like can we have a completely horizontal society what might that look like that by itself is probably worthy of a 1200 page Neil Stephenson novel just like what would it look like that's a really complicated idea because we don't have any model for that uh, and if we say like alright so it's really easy to say like there's a space empire or something, right? We we have these models where there's a war going on. There's the underdog and and so forth. If we can name something like the underdog, then uh, we are probably doing that in order to dodge interesting implications. And so if we if we say like, what does this look like if our um, uh, if our uh, conflict that's happening doesn't have Hierarchical structures that there that this this society has a way to uh, effectively redistribute power from uh, power centers. Uh, so there are no there 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 are never any underdogs. What does that look like? I, I don't know. I mean, you have to figure that. That's why we write the games. That's why we write the stories. Uh, and if you <laughs> when you uh, look at um, 
Dune, Dune is actually a great example because it actually makes these really strong racist statements. And what's curious is that I... He's talking about how awesome the 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 Eastern religions are because they're from far from where Herbert lives, and so he's like, okay, so what if like Zen and Islam got together and that was a super huge thing? Oh, and there's also there's also Christianity, and so as a Jew, I'm like, I noticed that there was a genocide you're not talking about here. Like somehow somebody finished the job on my people. I kind of want to know what your story is there. And there's a there's a place where he has like this weird little chapter. He's like, like oh, they're they're still Jews. It's, it's awful. It's absolutely awful. It's um. Is it, is it worse than if it didn't have it? Yeah, yeah. It, like, like I can ascribe it to total ignorance. If if he didn't have it, it, it is. It's amazing to say this. It is one of the least imaginative things Frank Herbert ever did. It was this? I don't know. Maybe three thousand words saying the Jews aren't all dead. Um, they're actually hiding behind and maneuvering things behind the scenes. Oh, that's worse. Oh my god. Yeah. yeah. No. Yeah. Oh. And some, somehow. Uh, all the awesome stuff about the Fremen and the Zen Sunni war, uh, wanderers and so forth, like they get all this cool evolution of their culture, and uh, and the Jews look like uh, Lower East Side uh, families from like 1940. Like it, like like nothing has happened. Um, it's all Ashkenazic, which is its own internally Jewish racist thing, and. Um, so, if you want to be able to defy these things, like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I think, said this awesome thing. Somebody asked her how many women she would be happy having on the Supreme Court. She said, well, all of them. Like, nobody really objected when they were all men, right? And so, if, if you can really say, like, all right, what do we lose if we say there are no white people? Well, I mean, people might accuse me of reverse racism, and then I'm, I know the people I don't want to buy my book. It's... Uh, you know, it's, it's like, what, what do we lose if we say um, uh, capitalism petered out uh, and we've got something that works better? Like, you, you get to use your imagination. That's, that, that's why we do this. Interestingly enough, like, when, so when I was in college, I was part of a sci-fi club. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was uh, at a women's college, so it's entirely women and some one, like, old dude from town. Um, but it was very diverse. So sometimes we sit down and talk like, so what happens in space when there's like no people that like look like us? And it became a running joke over four years of, oh, no, no we, we got our own ships and we went to the stars. That's why we're not in the future. Um, or no, we uh, we discovered something and took the moon really or right, moved right. underground. So it became kind of this riff on not finding yourself. I don't, I don't know how many of you guys look at this, and for whatever reason, you don't find yourself, and you're like, what happened to me? So out of that, we started this running joke of, I'm, we're here or we're there, and it, it really fuels what I'm writing. It's like, I want to make sure that people are here, um, that you have representation, or we have a very good reason, and not that reason that <laughs> came up with. That's like the worst reason. Yeah, yeah. In, in his defense, all the cool people in Dune are actually manipulating things behind the scenes. <laughs> but it's it, still. Yeah. <laughs> it reminds me, I mean, using the kind of uh, subversive read to put back your identities that you care about. But um, So, Rachel, you're talking about how a lot of, some of the fiction you liked a lot, science fiction, um, doesn't, you, you don't see yourself in there, or you don't see that the people you want to see. So yeah. Maybe you could talk about, like, do, ways you could have, or what you'd like to see, or ways you put that into long orbit. 
Um, well, yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's interesting because I, I don't even call the long orbit science fiction because I do not want to get into the argument with people about high, hard science fiction and soft science fiction. Like, You're I don't, looking at me. I, just, <laughs> I, I, I see this. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I, like, I want it to be what it is and um, not have to, like, fight against some constraint. Um, uh, but a lot of what gets considered hard science fiction in conversations that I have are these uh, old stories that so much science fiction is derived from, like, you know, um, Asimov and um, Ark and all those. Um, and I, and I, I like a lot of that stuff. It's just, um, I, yeah, I, I wanted to explore something a little bit different with the longer, but I, I wanted to see how, um, the smaller struggles, like on a, on a human level of like what, what people are dealing with, like there's, there's, there's some of like the classic issues of like, what does it mean to be human and stuff, but we, um, it's 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 a lot less abstract in the long run because you're you're you know if you're if you're actually playing the character that is um, not human you get to explore what that means like with your with your crewmates with your relationships can you be romantic um, and you get to interact with a ship that is also evolving its consciousness and how does that work like um, like what's happening with relationships there. Um, uh, I don't know. I, no, that's a good answer. Um, <laughs> and actually, something else, um, also something related, uh, maybe to both of our games, because I think I wasn't, I was starting, for, the, for this panel, I was starting to question whether some of my games, how science fiction they are, because some of them don't put, don't necessarily put all the hard, subtle questions in the four, though they're there, but like, um, I've questioned what does so what does a science fiction backdrop do to normal do to relationships? So we're having a scene where two people are arguing about a third person about how well they're doing their job. That's a scene that could happen anywhere in every setting. But then one question is like, well, this is this is in space on transit between two people to sell cargo or whatever. What, why? What is different with relationships because of this fantastical background? And I think that's. Uh, I don't know, I think that's an interesting question to, to check yourself. And it doesn't always have to be something. Like, being in space but still just jealous is very human. But what does that, what does it mean that you're in this science fiction background? I'm curious to say, like, long orbit does that impact it? And, I, like, I could, so as, as a brief example, I think um, with the space opera milieu, you're having these relationships, but also some of your value to the crew is based on your one profession. It's, your, it's um, almost a neoliberal thing of your... Your skill set. Your skill set is who you are. You are the engineer. You are the security officer, and that's such a big part of who you are. Aside from the rest of the human stuff, there's also the fact that you can leave at any time if you no longer have a kind of st- strong geography because you're just warping to arbitrary places. The bonds. You're not stuck in one place. The but you are effectively stuck in an elevator with everybody. You're else. stuck in an elevator, <laughs> but you know as soon as the elevator gets somewhere, you could go anywhere if that's the bounds of your story. So okay, I talk for a bit, but I think. Um, I was struck by something you said about uh, what it means to be human. I think sometimes in sci-fi, I think it's code for Eurocentric, uh, heteronormative. Human isn't really what every human experience is. What does it mean to be human? And how, uh, when a computer or a thing tries to become human, the human it becomes is like uh, whatever generic, you know, white audience or male, you know, straight audience it is. 
I've, I've never really seen a good example of you uh, expanding beyond that. You can talk more about that sort of cultural stereotype for what human is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there's my my favorite example is always Blade Runner um, because the uh, more human than human is the motto of Tyrell, right? But that's not the objection. That's not the object of the of the four replicants. They they just want to have a life, uh, and they do things like there's no implication. Has anybody here not seen Blade Runner? I assume if you're at this panel, you've seen Blade Runner. All right. So <clears throat> this is one of the things that I think is interesting is that uh, Zora is irritated by what she's doing, but she does she doesn't feel at all denigrated by it. Like, she's a military commander, right? And she's like, I'm not a fucking military commander in person. Uh, and uh, I can do sexy things. Like, ha, fucking military command. Uh, and I think that's I, I think that's kind of a neat thing. And, like, she's clearly... It, it, it's a neat scene. Her one very, very sad scene is, uh, I think, her saying, I think think you think that I'm being exploited, but I don't think you understand what's happening here. Um, and, like, she knows. She, she really knows that. And she's trying to figure out, like, do I really need to express this to you? I don't want to, but like, the whole, that whole thing, she's, she's raising her eyebrows, and there's a point where she's like, ah, this stinks. I'm gonna kill this guy. Uh, and that's because she can do all this military stuff, but it's not who she is. And, uh, you know, doing, uh, uh, stripping, which is a with really elaborate stripping that she does is um, like that that's her I feel like that's her saying like I'm gonna do this for a while and see you know I need some money so we can rent our shitty apartment um, and this is something that I can do that is not denigrating in the way that being defined by my state-sponsored murder job is uh, and it's, it's not I think it's not an obvious um, choice to make like you uh, Chris is the sex bot, right? And she, she's just like, I don't really want to be around people. And she's hiding the whole time. And, like, the... Um, I, I feel like there's there's this point where they're making choices that, especially in 1982 in America, saying, like, fuck the military, I'm going to go be sexy, and fuck being professionally sexy, I'm just going to go make a friend. Like, I, th- I think those those are really good examples of that. Uh, Roy is such a such a relentless badass in the end, such a doofus that I don't. They don't quite do that, but the two the two women do. I think. I think that the novel, like the Do Android Street and Electric Street, provide a really nice counterpoint to that. Where, mm-hmm. um, and so it's been like over ten years. So please bear. So I'm going off a strong impression so that, um I like the, uh, the contrast between the humans that are left on Earth as a depopulator, which is different, and mm-hmm. uh, trying to have empathy of animals and thinking about what it means to leave behind things, to have all these people, all these like traces of being human, but also between all the um, replicants having each different motivation. And honestly, I remember having, um, when he was retiring the opera center, and I felt like just this huge sense of human loss. And, and, uh, and I, as a reader, I was able to construct, this is this uh, entity uh, is, acting as human and it has a human life that I don't fully understand even though um, in the fiction not human so I found that a really nice kind of point to mm-hmm. actually reason mm-hmm. yeah 
Uh, yeah, I would say, um, I think one thing that can be important is that the question, like, what does it mean to be human, it's not something that actually has an answer to it. It's like, it's a journey or an exploration. So, I mean, if, if you have in mind an answer to that question, you probably are guiding it towards whatever that means to you. Um, uh, but if you kind of leave it as an open-ended question, you might get some interesting answers to that, and they're not all going to be the same. Um, I mean, I've seen a lot of people in, in different games explore that. I mean, Shock 2, um, where um, they find something that, I don't know, that it feels right to them and to their experience um, and meaningful, but it doesn't look at all like, like you or I or any of us, um, or how we might tend to define humanity for ourselves. I also um, one like to kind of move back to just uh, uh, depictions of humanity. I, I I tend to look at multiple sources. So uh, like sci-fi, I lately like I binge watched *Fall of Kingdoms*. I'm just gonna, so it's still like clicking in my brain. Um, I like how there's uh, just seeing the main crew on the ship. Um, and there's no spoilers here because it's a new show. Um, I uh, *Killjoys*. It's on sci-fi, but you could stream it. I'm just saying. You don't have to pay for cable. Um, I, between uh, the main characters, just people on the ship, main cast, it's interesting how they model different ways of doing humanity. Even between uh, two characters who are brothers, how they have those different experiences. So I, I find that interesting how um, they look at that and they introduce characters who have slightly different experiences that are... They give you a good idea of what their past was like, um, but like just for myself, uh, I, I'll tend to watch um, shows where they have strong representation of uh, complex women and complex black women in particular. So I I watch a lot of Shonda Rhimes produced stuff. So because she, she apparently has writers that get it. So um, usually I look elsewhere and I try to see. Okay, I like this complexity. I like how how this person's flawed. Uh, this I think I could do a little bit better and how can I write mechanics to support that type of play to, to have that type of nuance um, uh, I, I, behind me. Yeah, sure, okay. actually um, so, uh, one thing to riff I was thinking about um, the whole like definition of, of what is what is humanity and the different ways of doing humanness because I think that's like another baseline so if you just imagine any speech like Captain Kirk, not even making fun of him, like a Kirk-like figure making a speech on what it means to be human, you can imagine him saying things like, you know, to be human is to find your own way, um, to not, you know, to be limited in powers and to suffer, but to not be overly rational. Let's say that is what is human. And then suddenly, if you look at other real humans, you're like, wait, no, like to be human is sometimes I'm locked into a role, like much like the replicants or, um, I'm unable to suffer because of PTSD. That's like a one protagonist in Killjoys. Yeah. Or maybe it's like I have very strong familial bonds or I have no familial bonds. And that, um, I mean, the, the Kirk speech, for uh, is it, uh, the made-up Kirk speech, it feels good of like, this is what it is to be human, but kind of what you, I think was a good point, though, by doing that, like, our notion of what it means to be human, um, and we can really break down, like, coldly rational. Like, maybe if you're in a subaltern situ uh, society, if from a subaltern population, like, you are coldly rational. You're making some really grim, rational choices about getting through that other people don't have to make. Um, 
So I think, yeah, I think that's another baseline that's really fruitful to consider. And I think, if, yeah, similar to what you're saying, yeah, if you, if you answer that question, you've probably, like, probably done something terrible to some group of people yeah. um, <coughs> by completely eliminating their experience. Yeah. In fact, the presence—I mean, the presence of aliens—is ways to really to feel out real humanity. So I'm going to talk like in, in Mass Effect um, when you meet species that have gone through sort of very weird situations. So they they haven't had like a, 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 you see alien societies that were crafted by th- through strange interventions and horrors upon them. And sometimes I'm like I've like I'm feeling a lot of empathy, not like experience empathy, but like wow, your situation is something very real. You're literally not human. You have these impulses that are not human at all, but your story feels something really real, more than sort of a society of prefab humans who make their own choices and get to do what they want. So, I don't know. I think there's there's um, a really easy way that we can... Uh, I don't even want to say avoid. That, that, that we can actively dodge... Uh, certain assumptions uh, by looking at what works on TV and doing the other thing. <laughs> uh, so, like, we're talking about, like, who's a caption or an engineer on a spaceship. Like, alright, so what do we have uh, if we have an anarchist spaceship? Nobody's got a job, but, like, if there's a, uh, a problem with the second engine, you know who's good at that. Like, like it's your job to stick your finger in the <laughs> hyper steam hole, and and then they get the get, get the per, the person you know who will do this. Like, just yell for help, and everybody knows what to do, right? Uh, like, there's no fucking captain. Like, last time we had a captain that didn't go very well. We spaced him, and like now we're much happier. Uh, uh, and like that that actually might make him. Okay, actually, Farscape was actually a little, a little bit like that because the person who was in charge of the ship was not in charge. They had no idea what to do. Uh, uh, oh, fuck! Now I have to go rewatch Farscape. Um, uh, they ascended ship. Ascended. Yeah, but yeah. It, it, it's it, in some ways that makes it the captain. And so it can, yeah. it's uh, ultimately deciding where to go, but uh, but it doesn't decide what to do. True. And uh, like, like, distributing that across characters. For a given situation, I think could be like, what does a democratic ship look like? Um, I mean, these structures work well for different things. Like, you want a captain if you need somebody to be making really fast decisions about the right thing to do and be keeping the situation in their head because humans communicate slowly. It's like, all right, so what if we, uh, what if when there's a problem, we all keep our votes around for who's going to be... We have a secret vote for who should be captain right now. Like, if push comes to shove, like, everybody reveal your votes. Oh, shit, Cam's captain. Cam's captain? No! Oh, my God, he can't even drive. Uh, 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 so, uh, I, I just think that there are... Oh, actually, here's a, here's a, here's a neat example. So, Star Trek, I mean, there are severe practical constraints on a TV program from 1965 or whatever it is, right? They they basically have this one set that they can come back to, and they have to glue things back together after every show, because it's all just Elmer's glue holding the whole thing together. And uh, uh, so when you have an alien, it's a guy who's painted with sparkles and double, with a double exposure, right? Because that's, that's what you can do. 
Um, every so often you can do something like a horda, which is some a guy under a rug, uh, which is really one of the best Star Trek episodes ever. But the animated series is uh, instead of Sulu, there's an alien who's they call you know he's like a mantis alien or something. And uh, we have in role playing games we can we can do things like that. We can really push our imagination and push ourselves out of the obvious choices. Now, Sulu's my favorite Star Trek character, so I think that's a bad choice. But uh, uh, what that what that means is that once we're doing this. Once we're doing this kind of thing, once we've decided where to where we want to put our goalposts, it's totally fine to be using. You can use aliens as metaphors for moral perspectives or races or or whatever. So imagine that uh, when push comes to shove, on a Vulcan ship, three of us get together and mind meld because any one of us having that much power is uh, going to put us all in danger. And then, like, everybody else is running around doing the best, most logical thing that they're trained to do and so forth. But you have you still have a committee running the ship. So, uh, I mean, we have these ways of thinking outside of the structures that we've, uh, that we've got. Speaking of command structures, um, so long orbit, do the, <coughs> do the crew members have uh, a existing sort of, like, on-paper command structure of any type? Yes. Okay, so how does... Yes. Um, but that could be undermined. Like, so... It should be. It must be. <laughs> so go on. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess there's, like, one way you could you could undermine some some assumptions by building it in yourself where you can kind of create a structure in play that allows players to question that. So, I, I mean, like, because I'm using... I, I pulled Monster Hearts mechanics into it to kind of see what would happen and, and got a lot of fun emergent results. Like, um... There is a move about manipulating an NPC, so um, you can totally have the captain or the commander under your uh, influence. You can you can woo the ship if you want. Um, uh, yeah, so it it it, it, it creates a, an atmosphere where where players feel fairly uh, open to exploring. Um, answering some of these questions for themselves and deciding what they want to do. So it starts out um, I, 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 it starts out with like a similar com- a command structure that we're all familiar with but then it doesn't usually end up staying like that. Yeah. Well, sounds like it's a, good, it's a good rebound or a good rebound point really. Having a command structure instantly is like, like someone someone has authority they either have proven themselves or the opposite and yeah. <laughs> It's exactly what you need. Do you have any other questions? Oh. Yeah, because that was that was all answer to Cam's question. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so, so one comment, which is, uh, anybody who has willingly read a whole bunch of Philip K. Dick, you clearly love science fiction. <laughs> the fact that you found some emotion inside of a film, <laughs> I find to be absolutely amazing. <laughs> Sometimes I make mistakes. I was, I, was, I, I was like, I'm going to read a lot of film You know, this is going to be great. I, I read one where... That's the right reaction. Right yeah. 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 For the recording, Laura's, Laura's fa- like facial expressions are amazing. It's a series of bewilderment, <laughs> wonder, and mild personal horror. Please continue. <laughs> Are you like 
I read Man in the High Castle and then you did therapy sort of thing? No, no, it was just, I don't really remember the title of it. It just, it ended in such a strange way. <laughs> that, do, that doesn't narrow it down. I found the tape in my belly that where I write my experience in the world around me. Like, like, so yeah, that's actually my favorite. If it, if it involved having reality in a convenient aerosol spray, that's Ubik. <laughs> it was it involved this pop mender. Oh, popular, yeah. Yeah, and I was just kind of like, um, okay. That, that was just my reaction. So that, that's the right reaction, especially yeah. once you get to the Vela stuff where we turn out that we're all existing in 100 AD in Rome and we're all just projections into the future. Once you get there, then you're done. So, um, so there's a paper by Paul Krugman uh, that was written in 1978, and his abstract points out that he considers it a joke. But it's a really incredibly mind-exploding paper called The Theory of Interstellar Trade. <laughs> where he literally, as a real economist, at this point he's a postdoc, he's not, you know, every Nobel Prize winner, Paul Krugman, he's just a postdoc somewhere. He actually tears apart using monetary systems to be able to ship goods faster than the speed, either to the speed of light or faster than the speed of light, and demonstrates, it has charts, right? It has ASCII charts, there's ASCII error in this paper. It's, uh, you can find, if you Google it, it'll come right up, it's on first, uh, on first and he shows that uh, monetary systems completely uh, come apart as you get closer to the speed of light. So it's because there's uh, there's time dilation and there's it's not just time of travel, but there's time dilation problems involved with the time that you actually put the goods out on the trade route and the time that it's received and how exactly one even pays their crew when yeah. you're dealing with time dilation effects. Just wondering if you guys have tried to either dig into that or try to incorporate some of that real weirdness that happens once you start getting, you can't get, you can't warp, you can't go faster than speed yeah, light, yeah, but yeah. you can get closer to speed light, and the closer you get to speed light, obviously more time passes in your home, on your world. So we talk about interstellar trade because we pine for the days of, uh, of empires shipping goods across seas. But uh, maybe that's not actually that interesting a model. Uh, I do not pine to that. Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. right. Like, uh, yeah, we we might not actually be the people. That, it's, that in, but it's in a model. Structure. It's like it's a model at hand. Like, the, yeah, yeah. But it's one of the, it's one of the examples of the of a societal structure that that I was talking about before. That like it's really kind of best to at least start the process by sticking your finger in its eye. And uh, uh, I was actually just uh, yesterday or two days ago. Reading an article where uh, NASA has a paper demonstrating—I uh, I don't think the paper itself is just is released yet—even um, demonstrating a way that you could actually make asteroid mining uh, work economically as long as you don't bring it home. And at that point, you're like, "Oh, that act- hmm, that doesn't." Like it's not like everything's going back to London or Rome or wherever it is, whatever model you think or Beijing or whatever. It's like oh, that makes sense if we're, we're just trying to make economic value, like, but we're not bringing it home. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, well, I mean, because like, so obviously, like, like yeah. the way you do that, like that's what if the economic value you're bringing isn't because the heart of the empire benefits, but it benefits everybody else. Like, what what if the economics uh, in this case is the economics of gravity? What if the uh, economics of the situation dictate that once you get up and get up out of the cradle, the further apart and more different you are, the more effective your economic system. Um, that, that leads to a really different place um, where 
what what that means is if you're a space colonist, and I, I hesitate to use the word colonist because of those connotations, what if that's the way to be rich and you're like, uh, my family's getting too big and too similar. Like we have we have to be different from each other and uh, I have to not keep expanding my existing resources. The more resources I have, the slower they come to me. We have to we have to get more different. We have to go meet other people and then diffuse. You wind up with a really different society that way. I think if you follow so some in some of my space opera stuff, I the the the, the speed of light limit is the first thing you you allied because it's sort of hard to get around it. So you're just like, oh, you just warp, it's fine. Um, but and I'm okay with that because that lets me get to other stories. But if you steer into the weirdness of science or real change, you sometimes get like really interesting. You're not always going for it, but you can get some really interesting outcomes you have to resolve. Is there any? Uh, I'm curious if maybe if I like things where you steer into the weirdness of space or the weird implications and what that means. For example, in orbit, you are um, you can't just warp, jump back to Earth to talk and have more scenes. Yeah, like you're right. you're up there. Sure, right. I, 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 I mean, the long orbit is it's it's intended to be a one shot, so you're not getting like an in depth exploration of some of these interesting things. Um, one of my favorite outcomes sometimes is it, the assumption is that you're you're this crew bringing this freight load of stuff to a planet that's being terraformed, but when you get there, there's this huge storm going on on the surface of the planet, keeping you from landing right away, and then stuff goes wrong. But um, sometimes players realize that uh, the planet is reacting to the terraforming like with its own defense system, and they're like, oh shit, what are we doing here? Like, we're doing this terrible thing. Um... Uh, so we, I, I, I kind of like pulling in, uh, I don't know, traditional tropes and like turning them on their heads a little bit and kind of seeing what people do with that. But um, it's not my particular game doesn't like go in depth to like the technology of stuff. I think then oh, it doesn't vert because I mean in a different TV show that would be like oh we're coming in rough to the planet and we have to fix the the terraforming generator. But instead you're going with like. The planet's a storm. That's too bad. Stay here. And like, also terraforming is having trouble because that's like, you don't have infinite power over world change. So those, yeah. Laura, you're saying. Um. So going back to like economic parts, I, I, it's something I'm actually I've been thinking about a lot. So some of it is like coming off Killjoys because they've got like there's economy like there's problems with debt and like it's like there's some type of neo feudalism like kind of strange dystopian shit going on um, but I've been thinking more, <laughs> more about um, how maybe it's because of student loan debt but I've been thinking a lot about how debt how that travels how that works when you're um, <clears throat> when you're not home or when you're not uh, when you're traveling through places how does that uh work within a uh, galaxy. In particular, I've been, I've been studying this one because I'm like, there's some interesting things about how big powers work in this particular TV show. So I've been like teasing it apart. One interesting thing is that, so you, to go from one planet, this is the same system. So it, these, these people travel back and forth between these planets. Um, to go to a particular planet to work, you accumulate debt as going, and then you have to work off the debt and earn whatever money you're trying to earn. And I found that interesting because often, I mean, and there's also ships where you, you're 
accumulating debt. So you have to work the entire time you're on the ship to, to get where you're going. And so there's, there's this idea of like, like very real economic burdens on individual people, but also I'm interested uh, at, um, at a higher level how people are calculating this, how you're thinking about, oh, okay, I'm going to, and these are not really spoilers, but, um, okay, so if you stay on this planet for X number of generations and work from, like, for us, you can then bump up to a slightly nicer planet, um, but still working for us. So it's, it's kind of like this, it feels a little bit like a closed system outside of people who are traveling outside of it. And it, that your labor is constantly being fed into it with, Kind of limited returns because I don't know about you, but staying having my family basically kind of in like some type of what would you call it indentured servitude uh, for uh, generations. That's that's a lot to sign up. Like I, I can't even fathom being the person to make that decision on an individual level. So thinking about how um, how to entice people to do this, how how this would work on a higher level, how you would even manage that type of workforce as like as like on a higher level, like as an I'm an empire and I've got all these workers and this, I've got this system where people are funneling from here to there and I'm measuring their labor, but also every single person that is produced from like you now is mine for uh, seven generations. So I congratulate you on reinventing the Malthusian trap as defined by Thomas Malthus in the 19th Oh, oh, I don't so, want to create it. It's yeah. just something I'm observing. I'm like, this no, is you got there, which is yeah. which is really fantastic. Is that you guys can often be in track because that's an, it's an underpin it's another underpinning of economic theory, right? So Thomas Malthus has uh, he was an exceedingly negative economist who hated everybody, right? So if you read him, he's terrible to read. Don't ever do that. Oh. <laughs> uh, there's a book called The Wordy Philosophers and His Management. Um, and uh, so what he defined was essentially that humankind could never actually escape the, the trap of um, having to uh, basically feed for their own needs and be able to rise above their own needs. And until inventions that came in the 19th century that for the entire existence of mankind, there was like 1% of people who were very rich and then 99% of the people that were indebted to them. It was because they were so busy having to feed into their own needs that they could never actually rise above it. And that's how you start to get into some of that neo-feudalism purity that you're describing. Cool. <laughs> it's something that, if you wanted to put that into the, your game, I mean, it, it is really dry stuff to read. I, don't I would just go to Wikipedia, but... Uh, <laughs> so here's how I put it into a game. <laughs> Which is that I deliberately defied it. Um, and uh, I mean, I t was taking a little bit of a Star Trek route in human contact. I was like, these people have sort of figured this out. Uh, I wanted to go into more detail, like, like we don't have any money. Like, it doesn't. That's not actually even true in Star Trek. They keep. It's really weird. It's like something they'd say when, like, they, they tell each other to make themselves feel better, and it's not not true at all. Um, uh, but what I did uh, in Human Contact is the society the planet that eventually became the society of the Academy uh, was reaching this point of Malthusian collapse and there, at the last moment that they had an option, they said somebody said and there, it, the conditions happened to be right and if I knew what these conditions were, it would be awesome I would be the best philosopher in history but the, uh, somebody said, and there was enough, of, enough ears receptive to it uh, you know we don't 
have to do this the way obviously like like we have archaeological evidence that this is the third time around for us so wait wait a second before you press the button what if we just make sure nobody's babies starve like what does that do to our society my answer is like everybody goes all right, all right, all right, all right, all right, we're cool. All right, what else can we do? Yeah, and so... And then dot, 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 scientific anarchist utopia. Yeah, right, 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 yeah, right, right, right. Um, and I mean, they, they are in... Problematic, phase. problematic utopia. Yeah, yeah, yes, exactly, yeah, problematic utopia, exactly. And because, I mean, they're, they're, they're post-human, they're seven feet tall, they have toes, uh, uh, thumbs on their feet because they live in space all the time and stuff. Uh, and, you know, they're... Effectively telepathic because they they um, uh, they have a, a an internet that they're they're always on so they just sort of communicate freely with each other and that doesn't mean that um, they're falling in love with the right people right that doesn't mean that um, that they're not fighting for uh, top billing on a scientific paper that they've been working on for thirty years they live a long long time you can work on a project for for thirty years. Um, so that, that was that was my take. Like, we are assuming that this is that we're destined to this because of this dude in the 18th century, who a is wrong because he doesn't see the whole world. Because 200, 200 years later, right? He was like mid 18th century. 19th century. Yeah, 19th century. Okay, all right. So uh, so one hundred and fifty years later or whatever. Uh, the uh, We've seen other things happen. The assumptions that he's making, we already can change those assumptions. Um, yeah, yeah. He, he predicted he predicted collapse in the nineteenth century. Right, right. Because uh, because eventually we our need to survive pushes us to outstrip our um, our resources. Which of course he also didn't have the benefit of the fossil record, where you see that that's actually a dynamic system. There, things don't just like end. He's being influenced, I think, by Christian apocalyptic thinking that that like there's an end, and no, there's not an end. Actually, at this point, we're we're really looking at this Big Bang idea and saying, actually, maybe always time. Like, what the hell does there's always been time mean? Like, there's always been a universe. Like, that, that doesn't work in our experience. And that just that fact that maybe there was no Big Bang and that means there's no big crunch or even heat death. That's. Necess- that necessarily has an impact on the way that we think about economics. I think from a science, if just, I'm just to, to kick Thomas off this a couple of times too. Actually, I'm done. I mean, obviously he was wrong because we invented refrigeration when that was the end of uh, right, 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 right. But I think that being able to take a theory like that and apply that to science fiction, say this particular colony underwent Malthusian collapse, and then somebody yeah. comes and visits it a thousand years later, right? Yeah, so yeah. that's a real interesting. That actually, I mean, that happens in, in human contact all the time. You show up somewhere, and very, very often what's happening is they show up and they're like, wait, wait, don't push the button, don't push the button. Like, like, like we've, we figured this out, maybe you want to, too. Like, that, that's, it bothers me a little bit when that happens. It's a little bit high-handed paternalistic. Uh, but uh, it's also, uh, to some extent, there's like, you know, you meet somebody and they have, you know, they, they uh, system of they, they don't have a system of, of communication beyond villages or whatever, and they have these things that they do that are uh, uh, you know they have these societal structures that are whatever they are, and uh, you dig into their culture and you're like oh this is this is what happened because you you know you ate all the hypercorn. Yeah, uh, it, but uh, 
Hypercorn? Yeah, yeah Hypercorn. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, kind of regardless if you're, regardless of like perhaps trying to figure out was, is Malthus fundamentally correct? Um, but yeah, taking, taking a societal premise of like, yes, you can get out or no, you can't. Like, um, because your micro situation, like my day to day, do I feel like mouth? Do I feel like my debt will will explode me or something? So, like, because I was mentioning Laura's point that taking for these four worlds in Killjoy, saying, "Oh, this one is uh, Malthusian crunched and debt and horror." Like, okay, so that's that's this story here. It's true for this place, and it sounds like you use that to explore that. Or yeah, I started explore. exploring that for how to. How I'm kind of managing this whole thing, because yeah. dealing with uh, the economic part, like, kind of, like dealing with the dirty, gross stuff of life, like, but also, okay, how do big, shadowy entities deal with that? Um, and because at some point they're thinking, okay, this is a factor. Um, so to me, it's really interesting yeah. trying to figure out how to work that in. So I I think that a lot of I mean I've read several of several of your games of big fan of human contact mm. um, and. I've seen, I think, one or two at first. Uh, but we, ha- we have this idea of using these, these kind of conjectural situations to highlight modern issues. Mm-hmm. Do, you think it's, do you think there's more value in doing that from the inside, you know, from kind of exploring it from the inside out of <laughs> we've set up this, say, Malthusian crunch, mm-hmm. and you're inside it, you know, from a game perspective, the characters are inside it to get the players to sort of Empathize with it, or do you think there's there's more value in the players and the characters being outside and interrogating the situations and kind of saying, okay, well, why is it like this, and why is that connected to us? I guess I'm trying to think. You know, what what do you think is the best way to get the bridge between the characters in the game and the players playing the game? Because if you're putting these situations out there as reflections of yeah. modern life. I think the goal is some kind of education or at least enlightenment for, for the players. So, and in that, in the interest of, of that objective, the answer I think is maximize the number of perspectives that, with which you can empathize. So do, do it from inside, uh, because you'll recall in human contact, you're you're you're, you're doing both. yeah you're doing both right. before any of this contact happens. You have this, a a society that's nearly as functional in the players' heads as the one that's about to that, that we know the, the, as the academy. Um, and it's like that, so that you get to do both of those both of those things. Um, and I, I mean, I would love to see a game where you're playing an economic game, like it's sort of this impersonal economy, and you're trying to get to the point where, like, can we just agree to just let's just start by making it so nobody's babies are going to starve, and like, can can we all agree to do that at some point, and then have the pressures? Be like, you know, if I do this right now, you guys are just going to eat my resources. Like, 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 make all those pressures work. And uh, actually, uh, keep cool does that pretty well. That's what's coming to my head. Do you know, do you know keep cool? I do not know. Keep cool is an amazing board game that's about the economics of climate change, change and climate collapse. Okay. Uh, it's and it's designed by two German economists. Did you ever uh, read uh, Sewer, Gas, and Electric? By Matt Rob? No, no. There's a the the, the, clim- the climactic showdown between the hero, mm-hmm. that heroic, and the villain, who definitely is, is uh, a, yeah, is, is basically a industrial pollution simulator, uh-huh. um, with the caveat that the hero's parents are locked in a glass room with equivalent pollution levels to whatever the game world is. It's a huge takedown of, of Randy and Libertarianism, it's great. 
Yeah, that's right. Yes. Yes. I ran in a jar. Yeah. Um. Yeah. The inside outside. Um. Yeah. I mean, they're both. Uh, they're both. They're both different stories that are that are good to have. Um. I mean, I think. Right, because like you, you have both stories of like you're visiting the planet of strange Malthusian hats, or like you're exploring what's life as wearing a Malthusian hat all the time. Sorry, joking about planet of hats. Um, <laughs> but, but I mean, I think also like I think some of my games go more for setting this baseline, so we have like a slightly different experience of um, like uh, a post. If we have a very democratic or a post scarcity world, but then on top of that. Going right to oh, that's the backdrop of your human drama. So you're you're thinking as, um, you're you're thinking as someone who's not worried, say, about their job in a post-scarcity society. Okay, but now you have your reputation concerns and you have your relationship concerns or whatever else. So so you're kind of looking for the the, the commonality of of experience on on either side of that. Yeah, and I think well, I like I like both. I think just some of mine have been more just building a tier of of drama interpersonal stuff on top of that um, which that can be interesting because sometimes then you can touch upon lightly as opposed to sort of saying the center of play is like let's find a message about the social system instead you're like let's just be us we might touch upon how that relates lightly um, and that's another that could be another way to play it's sort of like what game you want to do I'm not saying they're not both but yeah that's our time yes um, thank you everybody uh, we, I'm about to go. Thank you. I'm about to go hang out at the Indie Bazaar for a bit while uh, the rest of us close out our games and stuff. If you want to come talk about science fiction stuff, I do really like to do that. So, <laughs> is anybody else going to be? Oh yeah, Deb. Yeah. <laughs>